Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good Friday service, I went home, and my son, he had, um, he's in the worship band in a church in West Seattle, and he's staying with us this week, and so he showed up too, and I just turned to him, and I said, so what are you giving up for Lent? And he said he was giving up alcohol, and as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, and felt a little convicted, but more resistant, I think, than anything. Well, then Jesus woke me up in the middle of the night, and I just sensed with him the invitation to just really take Lent seriously this year, probably more than I have. I didn't grow up in a church where we practiced Lent, so it's really kind of been an adult experience for me. And... um, and I think for me, it can often be just very perfunctory. You know, it happens, we give something up. and um, But this time, I just felt God just kind of inviting me into not giving stuff up. It wasn't about, you know, giving up alcohol or adding something so that I felt like I was accomplishing something. But it really was about um, just creating that space for God to um, come to me and for me to encounter him and for all of us to encounter him during, um, during this time. One of the questions that I had about um, Lent was, what are these free Sundays that they talk about where you can set aside all the things that you're trying to do and not to do and, um, and just live that day? And um, so this morning in my devotions, I was so grateful uh, because it was about that. Um, so there was a passage of scripture that helped me to explain it, and it's in Nehemiah. And in that passage, the people are gathered to listen to the law of Moses um, and to kind of hear anew how God wants to bless them and set them apart. There's kind of a, there's a sense of reverence and somberness as they worship and humility as they listen to how God wants them to live. And so then in the midst of this, I'll start reading from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, who was the high priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, so do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So lest we forget that our Lenten practices are designed to draw us closer to God and for God to meet us where we are at, we are invited to take a break to even celebrate in the midst of what might be our experiences of darkness and sorrow as we ponder the cross. As followers of Christ, we hold the suffering of the cross and the celebration of the resurrection at the same time. And so our mini Easter's in the midst of Lent can remind us of this. And so I do hope that you celebrate in the reality and the presence of our gracious God today. Okay, so now to my real message. It is an honor to open up the Lenten sermon series as we join Jesus on his journey to the cross. In preparing both for Lent and for preaching this morning, I've been pondering, as I've been saying, how the practice of Lent fits in with our belonging and participation in the kingdom of God. And I think it fits in perfectly as a way for us to embody the rule of God that we call the kingdom. We give something of value up, not just to check it off our list or feel disciplined and accomplished, but to allow God to spread out our roots so that we might thrive. Or maybe we add something, again, not so that we can feel good about ourselves, but so that through that practice, God might work the yeast of his character and his will into our lives more deeply and more thoroughly. And that is our invitation in Lent. As the author of Hebrews invites us in the 12th chapter, we're invited to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely that we might run with perseverance the race that is before us, the race that Jesus has both ordained for us and has walked with us in. Throughout Jesus' life on earth and all he did and said, Jesus modeled for us kingdom life. He was the king, but he did not live in a castle high on a hill, but he lived among us, among humanity. And as we will see this morning, he was tempted to create another kingdom of the world, but he knew the source and purpose of his authority, and he knew the means by which he would draw humanity into this kingdom, and he knew that he already had what the accuser was offering him. So before we look at Matthew 4, let's go back and look and kind of get the context. In Matthew 3, Jesus' way had been prepared by John the Baptist. His path had been straightened through John's proclamation of repentance. The word repentance literally means to change one's mind. This in order for people to see this new king and kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, John's hearers needed to change their minds about what the kingdom would look like and how the king would take authority. John talked about a baptism of the Holy Spirit that would come, an internal cleansing and filling, much different than a strictly external ceremonial baptism. And then, as John is preaching, Jesus appears, not to take over where John, what John was doing, but to participate in what John was doing. Jesus, the king, was not above the practice that was drawing people into his kingdom. 
He did not ask his followers to do anything that he would not do himself. And so reluctantly, John the Baptist baptized his Lord and King. And in this mountaintop experience, the heavens opened, Scripture says, and the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What an introduction. A confirmation for both John and for Jesus that God was in Christ, God in the flesh. Now, I'm guessing that we've all had those mountaintop experiences at some point, when that space between us and heaven feels thinner. Maybe it was camp as a kid, or a retreat as an adult, time away, or a moment when you encountered God in a unique, full-bodied, and spiritual way. Actually, right now, our students are at camp, and I know our prayer is that they are having this experience of a thin space between them and God. I remember as a high school student participating in camp and coming home ecstatic and renewed in my commitment to Christ. I'd thrown a stick on the fire, probably, that, and recommitted my life to, to Christ, and I was convinced that life would never be the same again. And typically, within a day, that feeling had changed, and I felt the same as I had before camp, and I was disappointed in myself and disillusioned by the lack of understanding and support of the people around me. It was easy for me to trust that the Spirit had guided my path to camp and been present there, but it was harder to trust that the Spirit was also guiding me into the wilderness of everyday life with its responsibilities and struggles, questions, and dailiness. Jesus' journey into the wilderness came on the heels of the mountaintop experience of his baptism and the affirmation of his deity and communion with God. At that moment, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had joined hands between heaven and earth. And what a powerful moment that had been. If we had been there, we would have wanted it to last forever. But instead, that same Spirit that joined heaven and earth led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit led Jesus into a wilderness of fasting and isolation, and that was broken only not by those who loved him, but by the accuser. Weakened in body, no doubt, Jesus encounters the hater, the accuser, the devil. But what we see in Jesus is echoed in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, where Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Could it be that in those times when our surroundings and even our physical bodies seem to be incongruent with the flourishing and joy and hope that we have experienced before and desire now, could it be that God is still at work renewing us in spirit and reminding us in the solitude who we are and who he is? Could it be that the 40 days of fasting led to a sharper awareness in Jesus of the reality of the kingdom that he was ushering in? 
And so I ask all of us, how does God want to use the next 40 days of fasting from something that we love or that we think we need in order to sharpen our awareness of him and his kingdom? I encourage you just to spend a few moments asking God that and see, see what you hear him say. So 40 days into Jesus' wilderness experience, Jesus is, of course, famished. He's hungered. Perhaps this experience came back to him as he taught the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded just a couple chapters later. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He knew the human feeling of hunger, of being in want, and of craving something. And yet, we see that his hunger for food was acknowledged, but was not given more power than it merited. Satan wanted to hit him right where his weakness was at that moment, where it was most acute. And yet, even in his weakened state, Jesus' spiritual strength and awareness helped him to see that kingdom living meant living into the reality that there is a food, a food for our souls that supersedes the value of physical food. And he reminds Satan, who apparently is familiar with scripture, as we will see shortly, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knew the history into which he was entering. When the Hebrews were safely whisked through the Red Sea only to find themselves in the wilderness for 40 years, they too felt hunger before God, and God provided manna. And Moses wanted to remind them that it was not just to fulfill their physical hunger that God provided the manna, manna, but that God did this for them so that they would learn the same thing that Jesus proclaimed to Satan that morning, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in and over which he has authority and power, he has the will to use that power and authority however he likes, just like the rulers of the world over which Satan perhaps had authority and has authority. Jesus could have just become one of them, leading for his benefit and his comfort and his ego. But Jesus knew that he came for redemptive purposes. He knew that his purpose was to reconcile humanity back to God, not to meet his own needs. He didn't deny his power before Satan, but he called himself to a higher source of nourishment and strength, the very word of God. To use his power for his own benefit by turning stones into bread was incongruent with Christ's character as the king of this new kingdom. He experienced the temptation of abuse of power that every king, every leader, and every person in authority experienced. And he knew that the kingdom that he was establishing was one where the king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His power was for the benefit of others through the purposes of God that were implanted in him. And so then we move to the second temptation. Satan and Jesus move somehow to the pinnacle of the temple with the crowds below going about their business of worship. Satan sees that Jesus has used scripture to respond, and so maybe he decides he will pepper his own invitation or temptation with scripture. 
Oh, well, speaking of scripture, Satan might have said, why don't you live by this scripture that promises that God will send his angels to protect you and throw yourself down from this pinnacle so that God will send his angels to bear you up and protect you, not dashing your foot against the stone. Here's your chance to show the power of the kingdom to a people looking for a new king and ruler and draw attention, draw their attention all to yourself right now. Now, if it was fans that Jesus wanted, he might have done just that. Fans are people who would keep coming to watch because of some great feat that he might perform. I think of Evil Knievel, who was a name that came up in my childhood a lot. He kept adding distance as he tried to jump multiple cars with his motorcycle, both to maintain and to expand his fan base. People would come to see him, but at the expense of his life and limb, just to be entertained by someone willing to risk their life for publicity. But Jesus didn't come to build a fan base. In fact, John talks about this in chapter 6 of his gospel, how Jesus addressed those who were becoming his fans. He had fed the 5,000, and then he disappeared to be alone and to be with his followers. The crowds followed him and finally caught up with him. And when they did, we read in John 25 and 26, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered and said, "Very, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Jesus' fan base was growing, but he knew that many of them were not seeing him and his message of reconciliation. He knew that his power and authority was to be wielded among people through healing the sick and casting out demons and inviting people to a kingdom of love. His purpose on earth was to not just risk his life, but to give his life, not for the entertainment of others, but for the transformation of all those who were hungering for something different, for a leader who walked among them, modeling what he preached and pouring out grace and truth in word and deed. And as he unfolded before them the invitation to take in his body and blood as followers, many of those fans turned away. It was those who saw past the miracles to the message and the Messiah, the one who held eternal life. They they were the ones that stayed his closest followers. And it was for those that Jesus came. Jesus knew that to rely on the power of God to protect him in a daredevil act was to disregard his character and purpose and to draw fans, not followers. Simply stated, it was to put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this isn't the same as asking God for reassurance when we are reassurance that we're on the right track around something or that... um, asking for God to confirm a big decision that we might be making. This is using the power and authority that we have as participants in the kingdom to draw attention to ourselves rather than to God. 
As followers of Christ our King, we are invited to use our influence to walk in and among the people, bringing healing, compassion, truth, and love with us. Jesus experienced the temptation to misuse his power in a self-serving way. He knows that we, too, are tempted to misuse our power or position for our own benefit. And we are invited by God to follow Christ's example. And finally, the third temptation. This time, the devil took him to a high mountain. The context of the temptations, if you see, have grown, first from a solitary place to the center of Jewish life at the temple, and now to a mountain where Matthew writes that the kingdoms of the world and their splendor could be seen. In each place, Satan tempts Jesus to take his eyes off his father and his father's will and focus attention on something lesser. Here, Satan claims that he owns the kingdoms of the world and has the power to give them over to Jesus if only he will bow down and worship him. Satan's knowledge is limited by his power. Satan claims to own the kingdoms of the world, but what he can't see and can't control is the omnipotence of the triune God, the one that is represented before him and is in union with God, the God of the universe. Satan actually offers something that Jesus already has because he is God. But how often are we lured by the invitation to grasp something, whether it be certainty, security, peace, power, something that we think we need and that we don't realize that we already have in Christ. We are willing to turn our attention away from God and onto something or someone who seems closer to what we want. Satan says to Jesus, all these kingdoms will I give you if you fall down and worship me. When Satan, what Satan is offering Jesus is a contract. It's a transactional proposition, a quid pro quo. And often, we like these kind of offers. We know what we need to do, and we know what we will get if we do them. They seem simple and efficient at times, but they do not align with the kingdom of God. God has invited us over and over to a different kingdom. We like to know that our work and allegiance will be noticed and rewarded. We want control of our lives, and we want to control the outcomes of our lives. But Jesus' response to Satan is a one-sided invitation to us that has no guarantee. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This week, I listened to Kate Bowler's podcast, and um, is catching up on some podcasts that I had missed. And for those of you who don't know her, she is a mother, she's a writer, and she's a professor at Duke University. And at age 35, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. She has faced the reality of the ups and downs of her treatment and her cancer publicly through her writing and podcasts, which to me has seemed very courageous on her part. She's also written a book that's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. This is kind of a title that makes me a little uncomfortable, a little challenging to think that. But in her writing and in her her interviews, she invites us to walk 
a walk of faith that embraces God in the ups and downs with no guarantees, just honest dialogue about life. In November of 2021, she interviewed a woman, Sarah Santillas. Sarah and her husband have chosen to be parents through the process of fostering children. In the interview, Sarah talked about being, in this process, being labeled the stranger in the system, the non-parent guardian of the child. So for one year, they brought a newborn into their home, weighing less than five pounds, and they cared for, and they nurtured, and they loved, and they protected this dear baby girl named Coco until the day that just before her first birthday, she was returned to her mother. At that moment, communication and involvement was immediately cut off. That is an example of costly love with no guarantee. Our invitation as kingdom participants is to love, worship, and serve God. To put our trust in the unconditional and unimaginable love of God in every moment and in every encounter in our lives. So as we conclude this morning, what can we learn from Jesus' temptation about life in the kingdom of God? What are the temptations that Jesus faced and overcame that we also face and are invited to overcome? First of all, we might be tempted to use God's authority and power that is at work within us for our benefit in order to turn stones into food, to love the gift and not the giver. But instead, God invites us to follow him, not a predictable plan, and to fall in love with the giver, not the gifts. Secondly, we may be tempted to seek a fan base within our Christian community by focusing on ways to draw attention to ourselves and to rely on others' praise to bolster our own sense of worth. But instead, God invites us to live faithfully like yeast kneaded into the world around us, drawing others not to ourselves but to God. And then lastly, the temptation we might have is to live a transactional life, believing that in God's kingdom there is a guarantee of outcome for good living. But instead, God invites us to worship him in word and deed, to love him and others freely and without expectation of reward. So remember back to the beginning of this talk where Jesus was physically famished but was spiritually strengthened. Again, here during Lent, in the 40 days that we have, we are also invited to strengthen ourselves spiritually, praying for a greater understanding of what it means to follow Jesus in this kingdom and even unto death, falling in love with him, spreading that love into the world and entrusting our very lives to him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this kingdom that we have been invited to. We thank you that you are a king that lives among us, that came to serve, that came to give your life. And Lord, I pray that in each of our lives, you will show us what you want to do in our lives as we seek to follow you. 
not just in the outwardness, but also within our hearts. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?